So, um, we're going to start with teaching, and then do worship, and then do more teaching, and then do response this morning. Okay? Yeah. Um, yeah, good. I'm going to <laughs> Jolene is going to pray for our gathering today. Oh. Jolene, please pray for our gathering. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for today. We invite your presence here to be among us to work in our hearts and in our minds. And we come to you with our hands open to receive, with our hearts open uh, to grow, with our minds open to understand more. Mm-hmm. So would you meet us in this place today? Amen. So as always, I believe the Father gathers those he wants for his purposes. So if you're here, it's not a mistake. We always pray, Lord, bring the ones you want and keep the ones away that for whatever reason you don't want to be here. So we trust the Lord's work in that. We're very privileged to have with us Angelina. Welcome, Angelina. We're so happy you're here. She is from Germany and works with Marisha. Um, And so Marisha is on a plane to Thailand right now. And so Angelina has come to join us and actually will be helping instruct us at the end of the day which I'm happy about. All right, so here we go. You ready? There's way more today than we can cover. So in a certain sense, all the things that we're talking about is like a table of contents to a book about the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to do the book, so we're doing kind of the table of contents. So we trust that the Lord is guiding us in what he leads us to say, and there's so much more behind all of this. And you're recording this? We are recording this, yes. I'll make sure. Thank you, Marty. Yes. All right. So, the context of today is the statement of personal devotion, which many of us adopted last year to say we want to try to live out John 17 as best we can for the coming year. The first part of that was a confession of faith to believe the basic tenets of the Christian faith as expressed, best expressed by the Nicene Creed. So we have been doing a series on the Nicene Creed ever since that began in, I think, September of last year. And uh, is been ordered by the Holy Spirit such that today we land on the Holy Spirit. But we also had a good preview last month from Sister Mary Paul and from Cheryl which they also talked about the Holy Spirit. So that's the context. We will be going on and doing the remaining parts of the Nicene Creed and future retreats. So let's look at this article. We believe in the Holy Spirit. I want to stop there and just say, do we really? I personally have been very challenged preparing for this. To ask myself, do I really believe in the Holy Spirit? Do I believe that the eternal God, creator of the universe, lover of all mankind, with all power and all glory, dwells inside of me? So yeah, I can say I mentally assent to that, but do I believe it? Is there more, is there more faith that I need be able to walk in this reality of the Holy Spirit 
dwelling within each individual, dwelling within the church, moving through our midst. I want to challenge us at the very beginning that when we say we believe in the Holy Spirit, let's ask like the person in the Gospels, I believe, help my unbelief. (laughs) We want more, right? And there's a certain way in which it's safe to say I believe in the Father, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. They're more remote, right? Right. It's like, yeah, I can believe in the Father. He's in heaven, and someday I'll meet him and see him. I believe in Jesus. He walked on the earth. But when Jesus was walking on the earth, there was a certain danger to say, I believe in you, right? Because he was right there. And if you say that, he might actually ask something of you or challenge you or, or break some of your comfort barriers in your own heart. In fact, he did that all the time. So in a certain sense, I think it's that way with the Holy Spirit now. To really say to the Holy Spirit, the reality, the living Spirit of the living God who's in our midst, we believe in you, is a powerful thing to say. And I almost wish, given the mystery of the Holy Spirit, that it had stayed like the Nicene Creed from 325. So the first council said, we believe in the Father, we believe in the Son, lots of information there, and then ended with this, and in the Holy Ghost. That's all they said. There's a certain beauty in that because the Holy Ghost is mysterious, right? The Holy Ghost is hard to define, doesn't like, as I said earlier, to be put in a box. And so there's a certain beauty in just saying, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and that we're going to stop there. Now, of course, it's also beautiful that they went in the next council in 381 and said more about what that means to believe in the Holy Spirit. So we'll be looking at that today. So here are images of the Holy Spirit. These top eight are from the catechism of the Catholic Church. Water, oil or anointing, fire, the seven torches burning around the throne of God. In Revelation 4 is the Holy Spirit's presence. Cloud and light. A seal or a deposit. Father Peter talked about that with us back in 2010, I believe. Hand, the hand of God. Finger of God. And then, as Clara said, a dove. The classic scene from the baptism of Jesus where the dove descends. Interestingly enough, the catechism doesn't mention breath or wind as an image or a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's almost because it's more who the Holy Spirit is. The identity of the Holy Spirit in a, in a fundamental way. That's what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit is like the wind. He blows where he is. Okay? The Lord. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord. So we learn from right um, that this Greek word kurios connects in with the Hebrew word Yahweh. Oh, Adonai. Adonai, but but it's kind of the closest. It hints of that. So that in a certain sense, when it says, we believe in Jesus, the Lord, um, it's saying Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. So here where it says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, it's it's similarly saying the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Now, interestingly enough, in the clause about the Son, it's very clear, the Lord, Jesus, 
In the Greek here, it's actually lordly. It's an adjective. So it, so it really reads, the lordly giver of life, which is kind of a beautiful phrase. And I learned that from Pelican. Pelican writes a lot about the creeds, and I like that statement. All right, the giver of life. This is continuous. It's not one time. It wasn't he gave life once, and now we live. He is the giver of life. So one of the questions I have for us in this retreat is, does your life need more life? Yes. The Holy Spirit is the giver of life. All you have to do is ask. I need more life. We need new life all the time. God made us to be hungry for new life, new experiences, new revelations. Now, the enemy offers a lot of non-holy spirits that offer false newness. So this is what people are going after. And they always looking for something new, something, you know, social media, a new social media app, a new movie. These are not necessarily bad things, but the enemy offers them in place of the newness of life that the Holy Spirit wants to give us. So we have to learn to discipline ourselves to to always be looking for the newness of life from the Holy Spirit. Sometimes that means fasting or abstaining from those other things to say, no, I'm not going to go there. I want you, God. And then that becomes the attitude of our heart. So that even when we're partaking, going to a movie or doing things that bring us joy, that's not a bad thing, we're always mindful of the joy the Holy Spirit wants to bring us. Both Father Peter and Clark Pinnock, who wrote a book, he's a Protestant, uh, wrote a book called um, Flame of Love about the Holy Spirit. Talk about the fact that the Holy Spirit, when he's the giver of life, it's wild. It's not wild. tame. It's not, you know, okay, here's a little package of life, you know, and you may get a little bit more later. It's like, oh, you want some life? Gush. So if you look at the beginning of creation, the life that was created, the life forms, the plants, the animals, all through the power of the Holy Spirit, Proverbs 8, the Holy Spirit working with the Father to bring forth all that life, that's all from the Holy Spirit. And it's not very controlled. Have you ever walked in a wild forest? It's just kind of, I mean, look around and you're like, okay, this is not a German forest. This is just wild. I mean, there's weeds and vines and how does it all work even, right? Like, it seems like it should all kind of fall apart. But somehow, the organic creativity of the Holy Spirit works. And it's not something that humans are very good at uh, embracing. We always want to bring order. And that's not a bad thing. It's a German forest. They're beautiful. You can actually walk through them without getting uh, thorns on your ankles that are, you know, it's beautifully clear and, and lovely. So those are good things, and that's the way the Holy Spirit works. This is a point Father Peter makes often. The Holy Spirit brings wild new life. He calls them surprises of the Holy Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit brings order. So oftentimes you'll, you'll get the kind of craziness at the beginning. It seems chaotic. But then the Holy Spirit brings order. So there's some people that only want to live in the chaos. 
They don't like the order. There's other people that always want only the order and don't like the chaos. As we learn to embrace the work of the Holy Spirit, we've got to be able to say yes to both of these things. Okay? So one example of this for Father Peter would be the charismatic renewal of last century. The Holy Spirit was poured out and it was pretty wild. Things happened that were crazy. But over time, it began to be accepted and understood. There began to be theological explanations of what was happening. There began to be understandings of how do you effectively administrate the gift of the Holy Spirit. So order came. And it's the ordered release of the Holy Spirit that in the end is the most beautiful, I believe. Okay? All right. Another aspect of the giver of life is that the Holy Spirit is the seal or the deposit in us of the resurrection life to come. The New Testament is very clear about this. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit for the resurrection of our bodies and the resurrection of our life. So that's another aspect of the Holy Spirit as the giver of life. He gave life, he's giving life all the time now, and he will give glorified, resurrected new life in the end. Okay? Any questions about that? Who's up for more life? <laughs> yes. All right. Who proceeds from the Father and the Son? So both Wright and Hogan in talking about the Son last year said we need to not understand the begetting and the proceeding as a time-based you know, so that idea of the father is older, you know, in a certain way that captures some of the characteristics of the father, but it's not accurate from a sense of the father preceded the son. They, they coexisted together all through eternity. And yet there's some sort of relation between them where the son is begotten of the father and the spirit proceeds from the father or from the father and the son. Okay. So let's look at a few verses that talk about this proceeding. So John 15. Um, can I have someone read this? How about Dad? Can you? Yeah, I can see it. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So this Greek word is often translated proceeds who proceeds from the Father. So this phrase in the Nicene Creed comes directly from this verse in John 15. Yet at the same time, you see the activity of the Son, right? Whom I will send to you. So it's interesting. The Spirit's proceeding from the Father, being sent by the Son. All right? All right, Michael, would you read this? Yeah. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Thank you. So this 
is interesting because here the Son is sending the Spirit. Here the Father is sending the Spirit. So it's not a cut and dried, you know, uh, diagram that you can draw and say this is exactly the way it is. There's a beautiful aspect of the Father and the Son together giving us the Holy Spirit. So this is um, an interesting statement from the Catechism. And it's a quote of St. Gregory of Mazanianzus. Anybody know how to say that? Mazanianzus. Thank you, Hogan. Would you read this? Sure. The Old Testament proclaimed the Father clearly, but the Son more obscurely. The New Testament revealed the Son gave us a glimpse of the divinity of the Spirit. Now the Spirit dwells among us and grants us a clearer vision of himself. It was not prudent when the divinity of the Father had not yet been confessed to proclaim the Son openly, and when the divinity of the Son was not yet admitted to add the Holy Spirit as an extra burden, to speak somewhat uh, daringly. Is that right? Um, by advancing and progressing from, the glo from glory to glory, the light of the Trinity will shine in ever more brilliant rays. I like that very much. It's not dogma. I mean, I like the word daringly here. Like, but it gives us a sense of the progressive revelation throughout time in Scripture of the Father to Israel with some hints of the Son and the Spirit, of the Son to the world, with some hints of the Spirit, and now we're like the living epistles that God is writing on this, the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our midst. All right, one more thing about the who proceeds from the Father and the Son. I've mentioned this before, but I'll bring it up just once again. The and the Son is in braces here because it was not included in the 381 Creed. It said, who proceeds from the Father. The and the Son be gradually became more and more in use in the West over the coming hundreds of years. Until now, we that's just what we say, right? Here in the West. Um, in the East, they don't say that. So if you hear them recite an Eastern Orthodox, recite the Nicene Creed, it'll say, who proceeds from the Father. They won't say, and the Son. That's called the filioque in Latin. And it's a point of contention and division between the Western and the Eastern Church. We need to know this as people who care about reconciliation. Um, I found out from reading Pelican that this was almost resolved in the 1400s. Really? There was a council between East and West, and they came up with the language that was acceptable to both the East and the West, which was proceeds from the Father through the Son. So both the Catholic Church and the Orthodox authorities agreed this is an appropriate, but they never quite got it done. It was like a council where they agreed, but they never made it official. And so the division still remains. But it's helpful to think about that, that there's a way to say it that incorporates and is acceptable to both. Um, it was in Florence. I'm not sure what the name of the council was. Is this a quick question? Is this the main point of division? Or are there other points? There are other points. Yet? Yes. Yeah. 
In a certain sense, if you think back to the idea of hostility, the main point of division is the Catholics excommunicated the Orthodox. Yes. And the Orthodox took offense, and it's a big mess. So yes. this is a theological point of division, but there's more. There's also, I would say, a deeper hurt or wound in the body of Christ that needs healing. You know, so you can see this council of Florence potentially resolved this one theological question. But I don't think it would have resolved the wound if they had, even if they had agreed on this. So historically speaking, um, Constantinople and Rome were vying for power. And um, no, there's so many things that went wrong, so many things that went wrong. That, like the, the excommunication bull was invalid when it arrived because the Pope had died. It was really more of a threat from the beginning than something that was intended to be executed. And both sides assumed that they would reconcile very quickly. But, but the anger um, continued to build. It, it, it was a, it was, the whole excommunication thing was, uh, Tragic. It, it was tragic, but there were tensions that definitely preceded it. Yeah, it wasn't, yeah. it, it wasn't like, oh, this came out of nowhere. Right. There, there were, there was a lot of political tension going on. That's correct. And of course, <coughs> Danny, when he came and taught us about the history of church divisions, he spent a fair amount of time on this. So it's actually, if you're interested in something, you can look up on the, Website, the Church Division's website, and study more about this. So, in a certain sense, you can say the statement from the Father and the Son is a unifying statement in the West, in the sense that if you go into a Lutheran church and they're reciting the Nicene Creed, they say that. If you go into a Catholic church, they say the same thing. But then it becomes a point of division between the West and the East. So, there's a lot of work that needs to be done uh, in our midst to help bring us together into one mind. All right. With the Father and the Son, he has worshipped and glorified. It came into my heart that this is not usually the way, in all honesty, we think, or the reality of what occurs. The reality is more like, unlike the Father and the Son, he is ignored and minimized. <laughs> Which is tragic. We don't want to do that. Right? With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. This once again reaffirms the oneness with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is one with the Father and the Son. And the honor and glory and worship that is due the Father and due the Son is also due the Spirit. He is worthy of this. Now I'm going to tread a little uh, on some... Uh, Potentially controversial ground. I think it's good to help us think these things through. So with the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. In the Greek, that is not a masculine pronoun. So when you go to Jesus, you know, He, de he, he descended from heaven. That's a He. It's a masculine, Greek masculine pronoun. In the Greek, it's a neuter pronoun when speaking of the spirit. Okay, so it's neither masculine nor feminine. Now, of course, in English, it would not be appropriate at all to say it, right? Because it is impersonal. There's just something about it that doesn't work here. So we don't actually have a word 
that works for that. I don't know, do you have something in German that? No, also like this. So, if you go back into the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, when the Spirit is spoken of, it's in a feminine voice. Because the Hebrew word ruach, which is wind or breath, which is always used as the, as the Spirit, is a feminine word in Hebrew. So it's neuter in the Greek, it's feminine in the Hebrew. And so, what I would like to say is simply this, there's a lot more that can be said about this, but the Holy Spirit obviously is neither a man nor a woman. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. However, there's a certain way in which it can be helpful to think of the Holy Spirit as, a, as, as having feminine expressions of, the, of God's character. Because God also is neither a man nor a woman. And you can see in Scripture that there are many expressions of God's heart that we would call feminine in nature, nurturing you know, when Jesus says, um, how I have yearned to gather you under my wings like a mother hen. That's a very feminine expression of Jesus was very masculine. So, so for me, it's helpful to sometimes understand the Holy Spirit in our midst operates in this way. Because we really want to honor the women in our midst and say women bring gifts that men don't have. And we need both those gifts. And expressions, and that's from God, right? Male and female, He created them. Let us make man in our own image, Genesis one. Male and female, He created them. So male and female is in the image of God, both of them. And so I'll just bring this to the forefront briefly to say, it's not a bad thing to understand when there's a He here for the Holy Spirit. Understand that that's not necessarily the predominant voice of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Amy mentioned that wisdom, when wisdom is used in Scripture, it's usually understood as referring to the Holy Spirit. So you look at the books of Proverbs, and wisdom cries out in the streets. You know, Proverbs 8. Wisdom is with God, creating the world, and bringing forth the beauty of the world. That's understood as the Holy Spirit. Well, wisdom is very much a feminine character in the book of Proverbs. Is that okay? Any questions about this? I'm not trying to start a new denomination. I just want to say, let's open our, our understanding that the Holy Spirit does not, once again, does not like to be put in a box. And there's so many aspects, beautiful aspects of the Holy Spirit that we can open our heart to. Any questions? Comments? Okay. Wonderful. Women, we need your gifts. Please do not be uh, hesitant about bringing forth the gifts that you offer us. We need you. All right. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. I like this because this is the first time in the Nicene Creed that I, I think that our response to the Trinity is brought forth. The rest of it is speaking. Who is the Father? Who is the Son? What has the Son done? It's for our sake, sure, for our salvation, he came down. This is the first time where there's a sense of how do we respond to this beauty that's being unfolded before us. We worship and we glorify. So that might be a, a hint, in a way, since this first comes in in the article about the Holy Spirit, that it takes the Holy Spirit to worship and glorify God. 
Does that make sense? It's like both the receiving of the Holy Spirit of our worship and glory, but this is about what the Holy Spirit is and does. So within us, the Holy Spirit helps us to worship and glorify God. We worship the Father. We worship the Son. We worship the Holy Spirit. We glorify the Father. We glorify the Son. We glorify the Holy Spirit. So when was the last time that you worshipped the Holy Spirit? And if you think about it, I don't think of that normally. So I go into a Hope Chapel and we have a time of worship. I usually don't think of I'm worshiping the Holy Spirit. I usually think of the Holy Spirit is helping me worship God, right? But here it says the Holy Spirit is worthy of worship. So I mentioned at the beginning we're going to stretch our worship muscles a little today in various ways. And I want to have a time of worship now. I've asked Philip to come and lead us. And I want you to keep in mind through this time of worship this idea of worshiping and glorifying the Holy Spirit. All right? So, Philip, come lead us, please. And after Philip's time of worship, Amy will come and bring us some thoughts on he has spoken through the prophets. All right, stand to your feet. Make yourself comfortable. Let's spend some time worshiping the Father and the Son. Team was just worshiping before church started. 